Well, if you want to open your Bible to, you would think Jonah, but no, uh, Matthew 12, Matthew 12. And we're continuing on in our series, Jesus, the True and Greater. And so far in this series on typology, uh, we've encountered really largely in the left side of our Bible or in the Old Testament, various types, types who point us to Jesus. They prefigure him. They introduce something of him. They are a prototype, so to speak, such that when Jesus emerges on the scene, that people would recognize him as God's promised Savior. They're meant to be illuminations of, of what God would provide for human need, uh, Christ the Lord. And so I'm just going to do a quick review of the ones that we've looked at. We saw that Jesus was a true and greater Adam who passed the test in his garden a much greater, a much more difficult garden than what Adam did. And Jesus' righteousness can be imputed to us. It was in Adam that we all became sinners. He sinned as our representative, and all the human race became sinners in that day. But in Christ, we can all be righteous. Jesus is the true and greater Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not for our condemnation. Jesus is the true and the greater Abraham who left the comfortable and the familiar and went into the void to create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and the greater Isaac whose willing sacrifice communicates the Father's love. Now we know, we know that the Father loves us because he was willing to sacrifice his own son for us. Jesus is the true and the greater Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and who represents and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save us. Jesus is the true and the greater Moses who stands in the gap between the people and God and mediates to them the new covenant. Jesus is the true and greater David, as we saw last week. Jesus who will build an eternal kingdom and rule it forever. And today we get to look at Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. And my wife, before she left town, was singing all week long the Veggie Tales song. <laughs> you guys know it? You might. You might. You might have just forgotten that you know it. It's something like Jonah was a prophet. Oh, there's like three people in here. I guess the Veggie Tale folks for first service, they had it. He was a prophet, but he never really got it. That's how their song goes. And Amy has put that in my head, and so I've got this earworm. Thank you, honey, for that. <laughs> so today we look at Jonah, and Jonah, we're going to see that while he serves as the type, he serves as a different kind of type than we've seen before. He operates in a different way. Jonah, uh, most of the types that we see provide a clarity of Jesus' identity. But Jonah is a bit of a countertype. His contrast carries sort of the caution of coming judgment. And in that way, he's different. So let me say that again. Jonah is not a type providing clarity of Jesus' identity so much as he is a countertype whose contrast carries a caution of coming judgment. And so our passage is going to start in uh, Matthew 12. That's where we are. Let me give you a little context and we'll get a little run-up here. Jesus has just entered a very uh, contentious time in his ministry. Um, he's been hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, and there's no greater, quicker way to get in trouble with the religious elite than to hang out with that riffraff. 
He's questioned about not fasting. He's accused of breaking the Sabbath because he and his disciples plucked grain and because he healed on the Sabbath. And he's accused of casting out demons by demonic power. That's what the religious leaders had to say to him. So in Matthew 12, 22, we'll get our run-up passage here, our context. It says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Here is that title we looked at last week when we looked at David. And so I'm including this, this passage here so that you can see the contention surrounding Jesus, also so you can see that question as people were wondering about the son of David who was to come. And, um, and that's what they're asking. The people kind of have this fairly right response to him. Could this be the one that God promised, this king that was to come? The miracles drive them to ask that question. But the religious leaders harden their hearts, seemingly protecting their turf. We're the religious elite around here, not this fellow. And they actually confront Jesus with a bit of a question that I think honestly is one that you and I might be able to relate to. So in uh, chapter 12, verse 38, they say this. And some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. A sign. So that's our first point this morning. I also noticed that in your outline, man, I really made it hard on you guys. I put a lot of blanks there this morning. So I looked at it and I thought, this is turning into like a Sudoku challenge. You know, how many blanks can I create? I think it's common for us to want a sign for things. We want to know what the Lord wants from us. We want to see his hand at work. We want him to confirm something. We want a sign, Right? Should I buy the new house? Should I consider changing jobs, or at least employers? Should I move to Spokane? Why is everybody talking about Spokane? Should I marry this person? Or maybe just have the courage to ask him out on a date first, right? Lord, just give me a sign. Just show me, right? And I think this kind of a sign just falls under the category of uh, what we might call decision-making and the will of God. And I've actually provided in your notes, I think, some really good um, books that you could um, read that are helpful in that topic and short, if you like a short book. Um, but I think this question sort of illustrates a wrong view that we have of the will of God. Uh, how many of you know what that uh, old labyrinth game is? Do you know what I'm talking about? Labyrinth? It's not a board game, but it's, well, it's not really a board game. It's like a maze, right? It's usually a wooden box. And uh, it's got this maze on top with a path through it. And you've got these two axis knobs. And you sort of pivot it around. And yeah, you're supposed to roll the marble through the maze along the precise line. And if you get it wrong, there's a hole and the marble drops through and game over, right? And a lot of times, I, I think we perceive the will of God to be that way. Here is this narrow path. When I get to the end of this lane right here, I've got to go left or right. One of them's right and one of them's wrong. And if I go the wrong way, I'm going to fall in the hole and game over. And I don't think that's the way the will of God is at all. In fact, we saw a counterexample to that last week with David, who wanted to build the temple of the Lord. Remember this? He wanted to build a temple for the Lord. He confronted the prophet who said, go for it. The Lord is with you. Do what you want. What great advice. Do what you want. The Lord is with you. And so he set out to do it. And then God changed his path, right? God basically said, you're not the one. 
Someone else, your own son, is going, to, is going to build this instead. And at first it might look like, well, David got it wrong and he got his hand slapped. And see, that's what happens when you make a mistake. But later on in 1 Kings, we see in the prayer of Solomon, his son saying, but David was right to have this in his heart to do. And so my, what I want you to hear is this, that God's will is a lot more about who you are than where you are. God is developing and creating and forming you into one who resembles Jesus Christ. And that is his primary and large picture will as it relates to you. Uh, and so I want to say, if you, have, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you're sanctified, you're submitting to his will, you're following the Lord, then you have great freedom to do what you want. And um, so what, what might be the problem with these... Um, religious leaders question here with their request for a sign. Well, I think where this request kind of goes off the rails is it's not that God doesn't perform signs. He does. And as we look through the pages of Scripture, I just did a quick search this week in my Bible software. Over 150 references to signs from God came up. So does God perform signs? Yeah. You better believe it. But I don't think it's for mankind to demand them. And I think herein lies the problem. And in fact, Jesus exposes the heart condition of one who does demand a sign. In 1239, it says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's that? We'll come back to that. Before we get to Jonah, let's just acknowledge what Jesus exposes here. I think when one is asking for a sign or demanding a sign, what we're shown here is that it comes from a wrong-headed view of the will of God, as though it's this one singular precise path I have to find or fail. And then secondly, I think it comes from a wrong-natured heart, a heart that is blinded to see the prior work of God and the prior signs of God. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Maybe you've been at a fair or a public courtyard or something like this, and you see one of those uh, tables, and somebody is sitting out there with an outlandish something or other on the sign, and it says at the bottom, prove me wrong. Have you seen one of these before? Something like Chrysler really makes a fine automobile. Prove me wrong, the bottom. Now, let me ask you that, first of all, that's not true at all. We all know this. We know this. I have to retaliate a little bit here, the backstory on that one. If you didn't see it on social media, I called the facility officers this week because I had a cracked window and I wanted them to know it needed to be repaired. And they came to my office and tagged my window with all kinds of stickers of things that I hate. So I got hacked. I got Chrysler stickers there and Cowboys stickers there. And I'm not telling you the other things that I don't like, but they got me. So anyways, that's why the Chrysler comment. But. Do you want to challenge that guy, the prove me wrong guy? Do you want to go after? Do you want to have a conversation with him? Is his heart open, wanting to be convinced? No. He just wants to spar. Just come at me. Let's argue. That's his heart. And that's really the heart of the religious leaders here. They've already seen ample signs. They've denied them. Even they're asking for a sign here. It's not so that they might be persuaded it's so that they might get more ammunition from Jesus. Rather, the righteous have eyes to see the hand of God already at work. 
Secondly here, uh, God gives signs to encourage those, I think, who have been faithful, already have been faithful, to, rather than to convince those who are skeptical. So where we see lots of signs uh, in the scripture, I think those are the reasons for which they're giving. It's confirmation of one who responded to the Lord, that he was with them and present, rather than uh, evidence to try to move them off of zero. And in fact, as I thought about this, uh, I mean, when we look in this particular passage, we can see the religious leaders have already denied a very clear sign right in front of them. They brought a blind guy who couldn't speak, who was demon-possessed. Jesus healed him. And then they have the gall to say, um, we'd like a sign. What do you want from me, right? What do you want? And as I thought about this, I, I am hard-pressed to think of an instance in biblical history where God provided a sign for one who demanded it. Now, some of you who are good Bible scholars, you've got a few names popping up. What about this instance? What about this instance? Well, let's work through a couple of those. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham asked the question, God, how can I know that you're going to keep your promise to me? Reasonable question. Did he demand a sign? No. But God graciously gave one to him. Look in the sky. See the stars. Count them if you can so shall your descendants be. Did Abraham demand it? No. But God graciously gave it. Or Moses. Uh, Moses was told to go and rescue uh, Israel from the Egyptians. Who am I to go? And God encourages him with, when you get back to this mountain and worship here, after you've done all this, that'll be a sign to you that I was with you, right? Or the shepherds who were told to go and find the baby Jesus, right? Uh, go and do it. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find them in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Uh, did the sign get them from here to there? No. The act of faith preceded it. The sign was given once they had done what God had asked. And so I think that's what we see consistently. Faith precedes the sign. The sign wasn't to animate someone to go and do what they weren't inclined to do. Rather, it served to confirm that it was God who had helped them and equipped them and carried them through it. His presence, his power, and that's what the sign confirmed. It confirmed obedience. It didn't seem to motivate action. So now some of you might be going, well, there's one other fellow. His name starts with a G. I have a question about him. Who do you got? Gideon. Gideon. Okay, good job. Good job. But... Notice about Gideon, who does ask for a sign, demands sign repeatedly. I will say this. Gideon is not given to us as the hero in this story, but rather as the bonehead that God used in spite of his weak faith. He's not an example for us to follow. Rather, he is presented as a half-hearted creature whom God demonstrated his grace and faithfulness through. Not every story that we have in Scripture of an individual presents the individual as the protagonist. God is the protagonist of the Scripture. So what's wrong? What's the problem with asking for a sign? And I think the answer to that is this. Those who de demand a sign are actually denying the signs and revelations that God has already given. It comes from a skeptical heart. And this is what Jesus says. A wicked an adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's that, you ask? Well, Jesus answers. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, 
So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, also the queen of Sheba, we touched on her last week, she'll rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. So I think what we find here is Jesus illustrates sort of the hard-heartedness of one who is asking for a sign. And I think Jonah actually serves as a countertype for Jesus. The heart of each man is very different. When Jonah is told to go to Nineveh and to preach to them, he basically says, Oh Lord, I know that you're a bit of a softy, and if I go preach to them, then they're likely to repent, and then, you know, they won't get the judgment, and I'm all for judgment, you know, let's let the axe fall. And because he knew the grace of God was likely to come to that city, he went the other way. And then he has, of course, his, his encounter with the storm and the waves and the wind and eventually a big old fish, right? So that's what's different about them. But what is similar about them is that each, about, similar about Jesus and Jonah, is that each of them has a story where they are swallowed up by an unlikely subject for three days. But at God's command and by his power, each man would reemerge. And that reemergence was to act as a sign. Being swallowed up and spat out by the fish or the ground in each case provided a clear sign that God was with them, that God had delivered to them, and that sinners ought to listen to them. So I think Jesus' argument goes like this. Just as Jonah's fish story led the Ninevites to repentance, so Jesus' grave story should lead sinners to repentance today. And I think with this particular analogy, Jesus exposes the hard hearts of the religious leaders who've already denied ample signs given. And this demand for another sign from them, again, this is not because they're willing to believe. They just want more ammunition with which they can criticize Jesus. So what we find here is the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders is contrasted with the responsiveness and the repentance of, of all people, the Ninevites. Now, let me just remind you a little bit about this great fish story. Uh, maybe it's because I've got fish on the brain right now. I don't know. But after his initial rebellion and encounter with the winds and the waves and the fish and all of this, uh, Jonah did finally, reluctantly, obey the Lord and go to Nineveh to preach to it. And here's what we're told. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, so here's his sermon. You ready for his sermon? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. No illustration. No Tozer quotes. No Augustine. No C.S. Lewis. No fishing stories. No car jokes. No cat jokes. Is this persuasive? All he comes, all he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I bring to your attention, there is no promise of forgiveness or even offer of forgiveness given. There is no, if you do this, then God will do this. No hope is even presented. He simply says, 
40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. But their conviction of their sin is great. And their belief in God and in his righteous judgment is sure. After all, they've got this fish-smelling prophet, one who had been delivered from the belly of a fish. It was a sign they'd better listen to this fellow. And they genuinely repent. Listen to their repentance. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on the Lord. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And so amazingly here, what we find is that Jonah was the hard-hearted prophet, but found a responsive and repentant people. In contrast, Jesus is the tender-hearted prophet, and he encounters a stiff-necked and rebellious religious leader. That's the contrast that we see here. And amazingly, it's amazing that this is the case because Jesus' sign is greater than Jonah's sign, right? And yet their response would be left. Reemerging from three days in a fish, that's a good story. Reemerging from three days in the grave, that's a better story. One is a bigger and better sign. And what we find here is, as Jesus moves on, he basically brings us to the difficult reality that judgment awaits. My friends, it is incumbent upon me as your pastor to tell you this. Judgment is coming. I would be remiss to proclaim the word of God and to not bring that forward. It's not popular. It's not what people want to hear. It's not PC. It's not positive, encouraging. Some churches ignore it altogether intentionally. But judgment is coming. And it's not simply a slap on the wrist. Facing God in judgment is not going to be a moment where he says, couldn't you have just tried a little harder? Couldn't you have just tried harder? The judgment that the scriptures proclaims is the judgment of hell. And it is described by Jesus as eternal conscious punishment. You do not want to go there. You don't want your worst enemy to go there. Certainly not your loved one to go there. And the reality is that all of us will stand before a holy God whose omniscient eye has seen every sin of action and every sin of attitude. Every seed, every sin, every deed will be laid bare. We won't be able to hide in that day behind our personality, behind our wealth, behind our job, our friendship network, or whatever kind of cover we wear right now. There will be no hiding 
before the all-seeing eye of God. And judgment will be dispensed. And the reality is this. We can either have that judgment fall squarely upon us as sinners or as repentant sinners, we can take refuge in Jesus Christ, our Savior. For the judgment has already fallen on him. He took our place. He took our punishment on the cross. And the argument that Jesus is laying out here is that Jesus is the greater prophet than Jonah. Jesus has a greater ministry than Jonah. Jesus has a greater message than Jonah. All Jonah had was a message of judgment and no assurance of God relenting or offering forgiveness. But Jesus proclaims absolute assurance for anyone who turns to Christ that they will be forgiven. That's a better sign. That's a better prophet. That's a better message. That's a better hope. Amen? Paul says to the Corinthians, Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He goes on to say, in the time of my favor I heard you and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus goes one step further. He paints a picture for his listeners. He says, let's kind of go into this imaginary courtroom, if you will. And he tells us the case law that will be brought against those who remain stiff-necked and unrepentant. The men of Nineveh will stand up at that judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at that judgment with this generation, and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. And so the last two points look like this. The Ninevites will bear witness at the judgment. The queen of the south or the queen of Sheba will bear witness at the judgment. And the point is this. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an event which was to come for the religious leaders, an event which has come for you and me, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ from three days in the ground to fully alive, if that's not enough evidence and enough of a sign to convince you to turn to Christ, then no additional sign, no miracle, no evidence ever will be. We laughed and snickered when we thought of the religious leaders seeing Jesus just healing a demonic, blind, mute man. And then they asked for a sign and we went, ha, ha, ha. God raised Jesus from the dead. You need another sign? No greater sign will be given. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Each preached a message of judgment for sin and sinners. Each one was swallowed up and delivered by God. By doing so, God provided a, a sign for sinners to repent. No greater story will be told. Jonah had a pretty good fish story. Jesus is a better grave story. I want to close by offering you an opportunity to do what Jonah asked the Ninevites to do, what Jesus asked the religious leaders and those around him to do, that is to repent of sin and to turn in saving faith to Jesus, the only refuge for the coming judgment of God. And I want to just speak personally to some of you, and I don't have you particularly in mind, but just to say, I know, I'm confident that there are a handful in this room this morning 
who have been putting this off, waiting for evidence, waiting for proofs, waiting for signs, just waiting for later, just later. Today is the day of salvation. Today. I would beg of you, avert the coming judgment of God, take refuge in Christ. I'm going to offer a prayer, and if it expresses your heart, just quietly where you are, would you pray it back to the Lord? Father, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. And I see that you have sent many to come and to tell us of our need for salvation. Thank you for Jesus, Lord, who is the means of our salvation, the one who took our sin to the cross and had it killed in him. God, I confess I'm a sinner. I repent. I turn away from it and I turn in saving faith to Jesus. I receive his sacrifice on my behalf. I accept it. I ask, Lord, that I would live well in your family, and I thank you for adopting me as your child. Thank you for the salvation that is found in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen.